0: Welcome to Brick Podcast. I'm Laurie Graham, publisher of Brick, and we end off our three-part series, Writer to Writer, which puts early career and established writers in conversation on the art and craft of writing.
1: My name is Kason Sharp, and I'm a writer born, raised, and currently living in Toronto, which is the traditional land of many nations, including the Mississauga of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. As a writer, my fiction and criticism have appeared in a number of publications, including Brick, and my first collection of stories titled Our Lady of Perpetual Realness was published by Metatron Press in 2017. I am really excited and honored to be joined today by David Cheriandi. David Chiriendi is the author of two novels, Sukayan, A Novel of Forgetting from 2007, and Brother from 2017. He's also the author of the epistolary nonfiction book, I've been meaning to tell you from 2018. Striking a balance between formal precision and emotional tenderness, David's work explores a complex network of themes, including family, grief, memory, masculinity, migration, and blackness within the Canadian context. He's the winner of the Toronto Book Award, the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize the Ethel Wilson Book Prize, and the 2019 Wyndham Campbell Prize for A Body of Fiction. A professor at Simon Fraser University, David joins me today from Vancouver on the unceded territory of the Misqueen, the Squamish, and the tsleil Nations. Hey, David, how's it going?
0: Hey, Kayson, <laughs> it's a real pleasure to, to be here with you, and truly the honor is all mine. Um, I was actually, in fact, feeling quite a bit daunted. Um, you know, I guess I have spoken with Writers who are skilled, but very rarely a writer so exceptionally skilled and cool. And that's kind of quality that I've never had <laughs> in my life. And I don't think I have in my writing at all. But Kaysan, it's really a pleasure to be in conversation with a writer that I feel has, has taught me so much and is a writer of the now and the future in a way that uh, just really excites me. So thank you.
1: How have you been like faring over the pandemic?
0: You know, I guess... I have to say, I, I've, I'm very lucky as a writer uh, within this pandemic. I've I had mm-hmm. a teaching job that continued throughout the pandemic. I was I was able to continue earning a, a living. I could teach over Zoom, and so I didn't have to put myself in in any danger to 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 make a living. Unlike many, so um, I you know I have to begin with that. At the same time, I felt like a, a lot of other people you know isolated. I live. With um, two teenagers, and I think just just that that age, I think growing up is not easy to to not being contact physical contact with friends, and and I guess during the pandemic, I've had family members get severely ill. I've had family mm. members die, and I guess kind of uh, those forms of connection that mm. um, you know just COVID made it just very difficult. And so I guess turn it back to writing. Mm. You know? just been um, sometimes hard to not only write but also when you're preoccupied with other concerns to f- have a faith that what you're doing is meaningful when in the midst of emergencies you know COVID but other social emergencies that have always existed but maybe more apparent mm-hmm. during the time of COVID you know I'm writing a novel right now and it's sometimes harder to feel that certain literary enterprises matter in the heat mm-hmm certain moments. But I persisted. Yeah,
1: I mean, the starkness of COVID, that it's kind of brought out, I think a lot of issues that were, you know, totally um, apparent in this country, but it just made them that much clearer, like the wealth disparity, the racial inequality in this country, like all of those things have become so much starker. And it is, I found it the same thing that it's difficult to know what my writing practice is like doing or how it's like helping in these times of like extreme duress um, i i felt it helpful recently i don't know if you felt this way but i've been thinking of writing more as a hobby and the way that people have taken up like baking bread or doing these kind of things during the pandemic and as a way to like lower the stakes a little bit for myself and be like maybe this will be helpful one day to someone but right now it is just something that I, I need to do to pass the time. <laughs> and hopefully that way I feel less like what I'm doing like isn't worthwhile.
0: Yeah, it's that's so interesting. I, I get that to find a form of satisfaction and even um, everyday personal joy in mm-hmm. a practice in this moment is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, You know i I want to talk more about your writing throughout this interview but one of the things that i i so deeply admire in your writing is a capaciousness that embraces life in a way that i think a lot the overwhelming majority of literary enterprises does not and so it is already about the everyday um it is about what seems not to be quote unquote political or about about the emergency of life as mm. as as we have it, and yet it is at the very same time. It it it's, it encompasses those things as well, and and so um, I guess if it's psychologically works for you to understand it as a quiet practice like baking, mm. that's great. Um, I, I see it as I see it as central
1: mm-hmm.
0: to um, to this moment.
1: It means so much coming from you to hear that because your work has been so influential in how I think about framing the everyday in my work. In preparation for this, I was rereading some of your work, specifically like I did a deep dive into Sukuyon, because it's so complex. It's like you can spend you know pages on this one tiny little um, moment, and I guess I'm wondering how. Like how did you know how to whittle it down to just those like precise zoomed-in moments?
0: Yeah, I guess that's um that for me is the the challenge. that I, I, I never know if I've done it. I feel that my my process of composition is I don't know if it's the right word, but I I'm tempted to say that is it's so illiterate. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a fluent, confident writer. I uh, when I write sentences. They aren't perfectly formed. I've heard these kind of apocryphal stories about certain writers. I heard one about Alistair MacLeod, sort of certain type of uh, short story writer, a certain type form of realist writing. Mm -hmm. But he, he wrote, hand wrote everything. And um, apparently he did not edit. He would think for a couple hours and write a couple words and then think a bit more and write a few more words. And then the sentence would be done. And then you go on to the next sentence, and, and mm. gradually, over a year, a short story would be finished. It, my process couldn't be more different mm-hmm. than I amount words that are generally terrible <laughs> on screen. And then, through a process of layering on top of them, writing over them, deleting them, moving them around, using cutting paste all the time, and something develops out of it. Mm. And, um, I just feel it it's a weird way to write but it kind of resonates more to me it's a kind of like a a painter is adding things uh. to and then it gradually through layers and through accumulation something happens something something comes together but it just seems it it feels embarrassing like i i never want to show anyone my quote unquote papers because <laughs> i'd look like an idiot <laughs> you know what 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 did that mean what where was that going you know, Until it arrives at something much later on.
1: Mm -hmm. I totally understand that. Um, I don't want anyone to see like the work in progress because it also, it's so unintelligible. Yeah. Um, It wouldn't really make sense to anyone else. And that Alistair McLeod system sounds like it takes a lot of time. Um, You know, if you're arriving at a short story, a sentence at a time every day. And I'm wondering about time in your work. I know there was like, you know, this 10-year period between Sukho Yan and Brother, your second novel, and like, I've often felt this sort of pressure to publish and to put my work out um, in rapid succession. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts like about time in your work and how to effectively use time, I guess.
0: I think that's where we, we I think we share the same care and attention at the level of the sentence. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, I see I see that so clearly in in your work. And it's hard not to feel, uh, for me, it, it felt a little bit like, like uh, 10 years of failure, in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, between the books. And then, you know, the years before in writing, so you're like, why can't I finish this? I, mm-hmm. I put in the effort. It's not like I'm somehow not writing for periods of time. It's, that's absolutely mm-hmm. not the case. It's a, it's a daily, daily practice of mm-hmm. a certain amount of, of time. But you know it's almost as if I have to fail in order to see what works mm. and, and if I were to write a sentence and get it if I were to get it right on the first try I need to write it 10 more times mm-hmm. to tell myself that oh that first time was was right when you talk about time I'm thinking about that just the time between books and how that kind of builds a type of anxiety at times mm-hmm. So you know I guess what is this world that makes us feel that we need to be constantly productive and Mm -hmm. generating something?
1: And especially when I look at like Brother, it's like set so much in the 80s and having it, like working on it for 10 years, there's another decade that of perspective just and things moving in the world that then you have to like contend with. Um, That's a whole other challenge kind of with like working with and against time
0: yeah yeah I think um, that I'm writing oftentimes about times past, but moments that certainly resonate with the present and then become newly animated by the present in ways that oftentimes I find discomforting, you know mm-hmm. with, um, you know that's, a, that's more of a challenge than something like a like an opportunity. Um, and And I think time in general, like narrative confuses me and and puzzles me. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't say this, but you know, many people in the literary world want writers of prose to write nonlinear books. Mm-hmm. And I have somehow perversely insisted on not doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's a certain frustration or fear of narrative. Mm-hmm. I find someone like Dion Brand has articulated this, this, um, this frustration and fear about it or the wariness about it.
1: Yeah. Um, Speaking of Dion, I was wondering kind of about like a Black Canadian canon of writers. Um, I read this piece that you wrote about Austin Clark and kind of this idea of a Black Canadian artistic tradition um, in which you participate um, and which I also participate. It was something that wasn't, um, I only found out about it recently that there was this literary tradition, maybe in the past, like yeah, five or six years um, before that, like I thought that black literature was a like a specifically American or like not Canadian tradition. That there was no black Canadian literary tradition, um, and it was also taught to me as something that was very removed from my own experience. Um, I think I was often taught black writers in school as like an exercise in compassion and like understanding the other. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so getting to read your work and reading Dion Brand's work and reading Austin Clark's work has meant a lot and has been really like eye-opening. And I'm wondering, like, how did you find this canon of Black writers and how did you like situate yourself within it?
0: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think it was only in my second year of university where I read a book by one white author. It was a good one to, to come across. It was James Baldwin. Um, mm. <laughs> I was friends, close friends, with uh, a bunch of black students, and we'd, we'd hang out in um, the student center. Uh, kind of an un, you know, an unruly presence in that space. And but in that space, we could we could talk about things that you know we'd never be invited to talk about or think about in classrooms or other spaces. At university, and someone had mentioned James Baldwin. I wish that I, for my life of me, that I remembered who it was. But um, and then I went into the the library and saw the collected essays uh, entitled "The Price of the Ticket," mm. and it just kind of blew my mind. Uh, something about the voice and what James Baldwin was addressing, and um, James Baldwin talking about living in a Swiss, remote Swiss village and feeling. Is blackness in that context mm-hmm. thinking not only of a personal experience but also of the modern world? Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, uh, the world is black no longer and it will never be black again. I believe is the last the last words of his of his of his essay, and it just really struck me, and I think that's what started it. Um, I started much more seriously thinking and searching for for black writers. Um, and among them was certainly Dion Brand, but also Austin Clark. And, and I think my connection to him was, I, I somehow discovered that he had written about Caribbean domestic workers, black women who had come into Canada in the 50s and 60s, bypassing what were at, the, at that time, racist immigration policies. So to, to systematically discriminate against people coming from the Caribbean, from Africa, from South Asia and so forth. Um, Kind of the extension of the uh, the, the the white uh, only policy of immigration even though earlier migrants had had found ways you know uh, uh to to bypass those restrictions but uh, he had uh, austin clark had written about these domestic workers and it kind of suddenly clicked with me because that's who my mother was she was one Ooh. of these people who who came to canada as domestic workers and experience to Toronto that was very different from the Toronto I knew, you know, felt as James Baldwin did, but maybe, maybe certain more dangerous ways as a, as a, uh, as a black woman in that, that space completely alone. And um, it was something to, to understand that someone could write about that, that that could be Mm. worthy of story and that that story was not, as you say, Kaysan, um, not about lovely you know, empathy for poor Black people. But the, the kind of the lesson of that story was the awareness of the cruelty of Canada mm-hmm. that um, even these immigrants filled with hope coming to the space could not see until it was it was too late. Mm-hmm. And um, to simultaneously say your story is the story that you have come from is worthy of telling. But also to rip uh, open that that placatory veil of multicultural, mm. you know, happiness is two really important things. And, and and then Dionne Brand, you know, did that even more so, I mean, formally, um, as well as what she chose to write about. I just found it so amazing. From there, I guess it, it became, you know, a matter of, of of trying to learn more about these writers and... And then there's lists can, you know, just go on, like people like, you know, Wade Compton, uh, Ezia Dugin, uh, Kinesia Lubrin, Attorney Martis, you know, all of these new writers uh, out here in Vancouver, you know, when I, when I moved out here from Toronto, I was wondering, okay, you know, how many black people are out here? <laughs> <laughs> like What's this, what's this going to be like? Um, and, um, but out here, there's this really, you know, this, this amazing kind of tradition of writing and um, amazing presence. with the, the essay by Marlene novesi Philip? Uh, you know, you people are um, all over the fucking place. Uh, <laughs> kind of a racist person shouts that. At, uh, at, uh, you know, that uh, person, and it's true. It's been it's been amazing um, to to um, and and you, K-Song, um and and so many others and. You know it's not to say that black writers are the only writers that i that I speak with I mean mm-hmm, there is yeah. a precious precious insight and support that i, I gain from speaking with and reading black writers but I learned so much from indigenous writers from bipoc writers um from from writers of other backgrounds too and mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's been a it's been an important part of my of my growth I guess mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm just like at the beginning of getting acquainted with so many of these writers and it makes you, it's made me realize just like the breadth of work and the breadth of styles and the like the formal innovations that are happening with a lot of these writers works that I don't think are like necessarily critically interrogated that way. Mm. Um, it's been really like someone just sent me this book of short stories by Jay California Cooper. But I'd okay. never read before and every story I read in this book is my mind is totally blown every time like I just didn't know that stories could be written like this mm-hmm. and I, I'm kind of like yeah I'm so excited that I have this book now and that I'm reading it and I'm also so like why well, didn't no one tell me about this earlier <laughs> like...
0: yeah that puts it so so well I, I have to say and I feel that there is a certain way that people maybe outside the black community could understand the category of black writing or black canadian writing
1: Mm.
0: sense that there is like uh okay there's there's an experience you know single singular experience or there's one kind of you know cultural presence um Mm. or the sort of kind of the you know the approach to black writing and black canadian writing that i i value the most kind of looks beyond those pieties of community and to see you know that um within that umbrella there, there's so many different experiences and um aesthetic projects and sometimes there are great tensions mm-hmm. uh, regarding um you know not only politics but also aesthetics and so even where your own work fits um Kind of writing so so powerfully and directly about growing up uh poor Mm -hmm. uh growing up queer uh being fearless in the range of your references to recognize the complexity of how you've developed as a writer and Mm -hmm. uh, how you see the world Uh, that's to me that's that's the that's the project of of understanding of you know black writing black canadian writing
1: yeah and i think the more diversity of black voices that i've read the more like agency I've been able to take in my own writing. And now I don't really feel bound to like a particular voice or style or like formal conventions in a way that I think maybe I did at one point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not, you know, it's, it's your idea. And it's also what the world and not necessarily the black world tells you. This is Mm -hmm. a black voice. This is black experience. This is what you should be doing as a black author. Even, even among writers who are now you know prominent voices in the black tradition. They, they have a deeper analysis of their work reveals how wary and how critical they are of these reductive notions of what what a black experience is. I guess.
1: Well, I was wondering also, like, how has your own voice and process sort of changed in since like the writing of Sukuyan into like this new work that you're working on now?
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I've heard some writers worry that oh my gosh I'm, i think i'm writing the same novel or same book over and over again yeah. and that um and i forget who it was but someone saying that it's not bad for a writer to gnaw at a single bone is mm. you know there there is something that you gnaw that gnaws at you and that you as a writer gnaw at mm. and um to to constantly try to think of something fresh or new, mm. maybe to do a disservice to what makes you you unique. But yeah, I guess I think it's in read. Honestly, I think it's in reading other other work um, mm. again. Kind of the magic of encountering your work, or you know, you know, different different writers that are really trying mm. to do different things, mm. um, and and even through a type of real difference uh kind of a r- radical difference i've just come couple of books i've read recently uh ones mm. like Katrina vermette and a kind of a novel that um again in kind of voice and what it's addressing kind of it shocks and then reorients me to what what i i think i need to attempt to do mm. and uh there's another book by lisa bird wilson um mm. probably ruby that um really, really did that for me um, as well. And and there's still another book, Jordan Abel's um, Nishka, really stunning kind of nonfiction book about the histories of residential school. And um, the questions of cultural identity and authenticity when those very notions have been disrupted through colonialism and through intergenerational trauma
1: yeah, that made me also think we've named like a bunch of contemporary Black writers and um, these contemporary Indigenous writers like Jordan Abel and Katerina Vermet. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the responsibility that we have as Black writers in this country and with the contemporary Indigenous artists and writers and other people of colour, the responsibility that we have to each other as peers, um, as collaborators, as editors, because I think I kind of came from this literary culture when I was living in Montreal where there was kind of few of us, but we were a really strong, small, consolidated group of like young black and indigenous and POC writers who really banded together and like supported each other throughout the years in I think really important ways. And as I've moved to Toronto, I've like met other writers in similar positions and like that community is like starting to build, I think among my peers. And I'm wondering, I guess, how do we like sustain that or how do we continue to sort of build these allyships as like peers and writers um, working within, you know, a predominantly white industry and within like, you know, a larger colonial project?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think it's that kind of important and enduring question. I have to say that I would not have been able to emerge as a writer myself were it not for the support of black writers and writers of color. The publishing world before *Sukuyant* was published uh, was not interested. It passed me over many, many times they 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 couldn't understand it. And the only reason i was was published is because of the support of people like Austin Clark and Dion Brand. You know, I was published by a small press that I love, you know, Arsenal Pulp has done amazing work out here. But um, there are other BIPOC writers, um, Wade Compton, Ashok Mather, Larissa Lai, and Hiromi Goto, were all kind of, yeah, they were all connected with Arsenal Pulp. And they, you know, stuck their necks out. So that's how that's how it worked for me. And I guess I've tried, I I really have tried to um, extend that same support. To newer writers and uh, younger writers, one that just kind of comes to my mind kind of amazing kind of uh, poet um, is Erica violet Lee mm-hmm. I'm just mentioning these names just as people who are doing amazing work, um, not that I've had any real uh, influence on on what they're doing, but the people that I, I you know whose work uh, maybe selfishly I tend to because it's so strong or Annalyn mm-hmm. um and there are people who, you know, that that I guess we all know Carrie Young and Jenny Hedjung Wills and Manal Matani and, and others, um, Alicia Elliott, mm-hmm. uh, Kimia Lubrin. These are all now, I would consider them, you know, major forces mm-hmm. <laughs> in the literary world, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever we each kind of got from each other, uh, they they are now of their own, you know, kind of own superpowers that are just doing their work in the world.
1: Well, that's a, another thing too. Is like apart from the kind of peer to peer mentorship I've gotten from people in Montreal and Toronto, like yourself and Kinesia Lubrin and Alicia Elliott, like a lot of these writers that you've named, Carrie Anne Leung, Young, have been so supportive, and to have like a generation of writers kind of like above me to have that and to have them you know not kind of pull the ladder out from (laughs) under but to really like be eager to support and encourage a new generation of writers has been like so powerful to me and so like I I don't know if I would have still been writing had I not had that encouragement.
0: Yeah, those people that you name are incredibly generous. I mean, they are so generous with their time and their support. Um, I wonder if this latest generation of writers, it's been an imperative because of the challenges, the new challenges of publishing. At once, there seems to be, at times, somewhat positive shifts towards a different type of reception to non-white writers um, at the same time there are major contractions in the publishing industry fewer books are being published fewer grants um, smaller advances um, and so I think that's the profound wisdom of again those those writers that you've mentioned to kind of see that that's so important and I and I think yeah now I suddenly find myself being of a, of a many cases of a different generation or um, Um, and I think, you know, for me, it's, it's a hope that I can continue to lend, um, as much support as I, as I humanly can. And and I think it's just, I think it's just really important.
1: And yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciate all like the mentorship and support that you've given me. Like it really, it's made me continue my practice in a way that I didn't really think of it as seriously necessarily when I first started. And the work itself, right, like has been like a mentor, if that makes any sense.
0: That's, that's so kind of you to say, but, you know, that's, that's where I see the work of this new generation, the writers that you mentioned now, now being the work that we need to read, you know, that we need to learn from. I think sometimes my, my work is about a past in which there were crises that continue to this to this day and that maybe the significance of the work is about this this like a deeper historical memory a deeper cultural memory to to the crises that specific communities specific people have have faced and I think there's there's a kind of way in which quiet way in which I think that's important and I've, I've learned from older writers than me that continue to read Austin Clark or I, I, I the work of Tony Morrison is, is very important to me but I you know the work of this latest generation of writers i I see as so urgent mm. and so of this moment and so crucial for all of those reasons. and um and it's it amazes me at how how rapidly kind of the the intensity of the work has has overtaken and overwhelmed mm. a previous generation of writers. So to me, I think it's just, it, it's not only about mentorship, but about a kind of like a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the way I feel it, um, that, that dialogue has, has enriched my work and has been inspiring.
1: Yeah, and like I've been meaning to tell you, it's this direct address to your child, and it is set so much more in the immediate than Sucuillon, our brother. And I'm wondering, in the new work that you're working on, is it like something that is said in the past or is it something that is more about an immediate present
0: yeah it's the title is very provisionally uh da costa Mm. uh, and referencing matthew da costa who is uh you know according to the historical records that we have available now possibly the first you know person first black person that that um that uh visited the the lands that would later be called you know Canada, these indigenous lands that, that would later be called Canada. But I, I it's not about a historical novel. I, I don't I can't write that. I can't write historical novels. I don't I don't trust history <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: in that way. It's kind of it's it is about how people now are kind of um, looking at the 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 story and the history this figure of history, De Costa, in order to make sense of their lives today, and mm. what the Matthew De Costa, the historical figure, did—he was a translator for European traders and colonists mm. between the Europeans and indigenous peoples. And so, one could say he is, um, you know, complicit in um, a colonial project. Mm. Now, he may have been trying to survive. Just you know, this is the early 1600s. Um, transatlantic slavery is just getting started, but it's not at its height by any means uh, yet, at least not in North America. But what we learn about Da Costa is that he he was a free person employed by traders and colonists because he was just amazing with languages. So he was skilled, thoughtful, all these sorts of things, intelligent. The last record we have of him is he is in jail for issuing insolences is the crime, insolences. Mm -hmm. And I love that idea that, you know, did he suddenly speak back, speak against, Mm -hmm. do something to be insolent Mm -hmm. to the people who hired him? What kind of knowledge did he arrive at, at, the kind of work that he was doing? And to me, that's a powerful story potentially of, how as black people we have been subjected to profoundly dehumanizing violence and even even in moments when that hasn't been felt so directly it swarms around us and so then how then do we divest ourselves from that 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 those processes of violence that afflict us and others and I'm thinking um, you know uh, indigenous peoples mm-hmm. so uh, I guess the people of now are are s- situated in Vancouver not in mm-hmm. Um, you know these territories not 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 scarborough mm. uh, it is now not 10 20 uh, 30 years ago and i'm experimenting with third person close third person voice not first mm-hmm. person voice not of one character but of three characters mm. so it's a it's a different project in some ways and yet as i've mentioned to you i wonder at times oh god am i just writing the same damn novel over again somehow. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> it's the same bone I'm gnawing at, um, but in a maybe a slightly different form.
1: Sounds really exciting. And I think also the, so much of the immediate moment right now is about looking at the past and interrogating those past histories and, and interrogating our own complicity in them, that there is like a certain beckoning that needs to happen in the work. Um, and that reckoning is going to be like cross-temporal necessarily.
0: What a power, I, I mean, I need your blurb for this now. That's that's better than, you know, anything I've been able to formulate about the significance of the book, uh, <laughs> thus far. So, um, yeah, it, it's, I think it's, I I think it's, it's, that's those are wonderful wonderful words and I I'll take that actually <laughs> well
1: what's also interesting with your work too is that it um well from the sounds of this latest project which yeah obviously I'm, I got very excited hearing you talk about it um it's yeah there is this gnawing at the same bone um, but it's You know we started in a house in Scarborough and then it's like slowly grown outward like I've been meaning to tell you you were going like a bit more outward and now it's going more and more out and I think it's very inspiring because I think I'm still at the stage of like working at my own stuff where I'm I'm still constructing that initial house and so you know one day have ambitions to maybe grow my perspective outward and so to see that kind of through line in your work is really, um, yeah, it's really inspiring.
0: It's so interesting. I mean, I, I get that in that there, some, the, the the strength and beauty in a, a very powerful sense of your writing is um, is its intimacy and its fearless kind of intimacy. Um, it's an enunciation of, of of a vulnerability at times that I find just really, really amazing, So, so moving. And a kind of a, a just an intelligence that courses through it, a kind of an, an analysis, everyday analysis of the world. And it's it's um that, that tears down again the kind of the illusions and the pieties. Um so you know, on the one hand, it's that intimacy that I find very powerful in your in in the uh nonfiction work that I was I was privileged enough to to read. But there is also, and I, I, you know, I guess I started with this: the the capaciousness of your work that doesn't make it seem as if it's of a particular space. It is the the world in which these characters live in, and what is impacting upon them is traced through these references that speak of global forces, mm-hmm. speak of relations. Maybe that's we're doing it in different ways, but it's the same. Maybe the same challenge: um, right. the challenge of of relations, relationality for for Black writers, which is is always deeply. It seems so deeply complex. But I guess yeah, for this book particularly, it is. Um, yeah, I'm trying to in my, to the best of my ability, and with kind of like a, an open kind of mind, open heart to kind of think of those, those relations that um, mm-hmm. are both historical, and um, you know active right now.
1: I think you bring up an interesting point there too about like we've talked about writing through time, but um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about writing through space as well, because you've written so much about Scarborough um, and, you know, two of your books have been largely placed in Scarborough and now it sounds like as you're moving outward, like do you, is it difficult to write space when you're not in that space and like, how do you construct space in your work? What does that process look like? Yeah,
0: it's, um, I sometimes teach creative writing courses. That's, that's not what I was hired to teach, uh, initially as a, someone who teaches in a university. And there was another creative writer that wrote the kind of textbook I'm using. It's a lower level course, um, kind of an anthology and guide to writing. And, uh, there's a, there's a section on setting Mm. and, uh, it's all about, you know, write about the setting that, you know, and, um, try to kind of see what's distinctive about it and whatnot and it kind of struck me in in, in a lot of kind of texts like that about about setting um how to capture a setting how to you know and even that word how to capture a setting is mm-hmm. is maybe getting to the the question that i'm asking is um the, kind of like the traps of coloniality that we sometimes fall mm-hmm. into when when writing about setting and um how we can presume this setting is ours in certain ways. And I'm thinking of kind of romantic writing of, of Westerns and um, certain types of nature writing that I associate not with, we're not with Black writers who, who have very oftentimes cannot but be aware of the fact that their they're belonging in the, in the quote unquote, you know, new world in the Americas is precarious right from the beginning and that's you know in in certain interpretations there is no there is no belonging there but i guess um that opens up just like an awareness to recognize who does have you know as you know who who is who are the rightful inhabitants of this place and how does a, a genuine understanding of any place have to wrestle with have to acknowledge, indigenous presence but also dispossession in mm-hmm. order for places to come into being. One thing I found so striking in, again in your, your creative nonfiction work, how you represented Alexandra Park mm-hmm. and this kind of space of oftentimes of, of precarity where people grow up and, and live and how crucial it is to actually depict that space mm-hmm. because these are spaces that people can neglect or misrepresent, or or ignore, or it's it's not the it's not the convenient space, mm-hmm. I guess, in 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 a kind of a, a national imagining, and so I guess that's how I also kind of viewed a bit the Scarborough that I grew up in, you know, I did want to try to depict it, and so sometime someplace between kind of you know depicting the spaces that are not going to be depicted, and not or not depicted accurately. Or not depicted um, in ways that that reflect people's desire to live and also people's you know hardships, um, and then also balancing that with a deeper awareness of how those spaces came to be through other uh, dispossessions.
1: Yeah, it's that relationality element that you were talking about earlier, and so that relationality element includes like an understanding of you know the many factors that could have brought someone to the land and like who is not on the land at a certain time. You bring up a really good point, like it's something that needs to be reckoned with when people construct space. And in writing about Alexandra Park, for those of you who don't know, um, I grew up and have written about Alexandra Park, which is a housing project in downtown Toronto which is currently under revitalization. So the neighborhood is changing a lot. The demographics are shifting very rapidly. And I was aware that there isn't a lot of writing about it specifically in like a fiction or like creative nonfiction context. Um, And so wanting to create some sort of archive or counter archive to like maybe an official narrative of the space that exists because maybe the only records of that Of the housing project that will exist you know in the future will be things from the city of toronto and things from the housing commission and and not actually records of the people who lived there so trying to create some sort of like living archive while the space is still around felt important and i feel like your work also does that with scarborough um where you know i'm not as familiar with scarborough having grown up downtown but like i do you know that the neighborhood is changing a lot and like changing quite rapidly?
0: Yeah, I well, I, I think the work that you're describing uh, for yourself at Alexandra Park is is really so, um, so, so crucial. I mean, it's it's um, in the uh, the reasons for writing on a space that could easily fall out of record. But more than that, um, it's the, the forms of record that spaces have, how those spaces are evoked is, is really important to me. And that's the game, that's precisely why I found your evocation of Alexander Park really, really important.
1: That means so much to me. It, it's very nice um, to feel so seen as a, a emerging writer um, and um, and especially from you know, someone whose work has meant a lot to me and has been very impactful in the way that I in the way that I've developed the writing practice. So, thank you.
0: You know, one one question I did want to ask you. Yeah. Oh, is um how the editing of your most recent mm. manuscript is is going and um this book that we've been we've been we've been talking uh a, a bit about. I just love to hear about a bit more about how you are doing
1: Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, Like sent David, I sent you an initial manuscript that was like a collection of essays and stories that I had written over the past like six or seven years that were all connected by this narrative thread of this newsletter project that I did. And I was doing that project for free, just like on the internet. And I pushed myself to release one of these newsletters a month. And so because of that time constraint, there are things in those that I like didn't get enough time to like research properly or expand upon. So now I'm just taking my time to rework each one of those to be as robust as I want them to be. And it's really, uh, writing a novel is very, or writing a book is very hard. I think it was um, Elizabeth DiMarioffi, who I heard do a talk once, in, um, she said, writing a short story was like, you know, moving a puppet, like a marionette puppet, and you see what the string does, like what it's connected to. You can see directly the hand that it's going to raise when you pull the string. But writing a full length book is like pulling strings on a marionette puppet, but the foot is like 30 kilometers away and you don't know what it's going to be kicking. Um, so i'm in that point right now where you know i'm making these little minute changes but those little minute changes end up making a big change later on um but the kind of i guess basis of the book is this like artist coming of age novel so it's this idea about my own artistic development and so i've been reading like a lot of that kind of book like there's this one book called Beijing Doll by Chun Su and she's like a Chinese punk music writer and she wrote this auto fictional novel about her growing up in China and like kind of just post Maoist China and so I've yeah I've been thinking a lot about that about like how young artists I guess flourish while living in states of like relative precarity and it's a lot of fun and I'm just trying to like have as much fun with it as I can, which, you know, can be difficult and daunting. Um, but yeah, trying not to rush myself and enjoy the process as much as I can.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I really, uh, I really can't imagine uh, the reader who would not find it interesting. I'm sure for younger younger artists, it'll be a a really riveting read, but I you know it's for me no no longer a younger artist and (laughs) kind of a different different situation. I I found it really, really deeply compelling. And I was wondering at first I thought uh, I recognize one moment that sometimes comes to me where I'm writing something and there's a lot of writing around thing that I that I'm writing and then a later point in the writing process it's kind of like taking down the scaffolding.
1: Yeah I'm in the process of taking down all the scaffolding and it is a really scary and intense experience and very vulnerable to kind of you know edit out all of stuff that is very pretty but maybe not as consequential to what the book is actually about or trying to do which is also, a process of figuring out exactly what it is that I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know that feeling. And it's amazing how late it happens. And you know, why does it have to happen so late? And have the points of the book right at the beginning and then just execute it.
1: <laughs> well, I think I think we have similar processes in this way of like it just it takes us a long time to get to things, oh, and. I am often, I don't know if you feel this way, but envious of authors who somehow manage to like write an entire book from start to finish in a year. And I'm like, I've been doing this for maybe seven years now and I just got a first draft together. Yeah.
0: I, I don't understand how it's done that way either. It's, um, it's amazing that there are writers that can do that, but not me.
1: How do you balance your writing I guess with the everyday life? Like I was just thinking of even in coming here and meeting you today I was like preparing my notes and then I found like a small ant infestation under my garbage so then I had to like stop and clear that up. How do you balance the you know the water spilling and the ant infestation with also you know trying to write a novel?
0: (laughs) Yeah yeah it's it's uh yeah I wish I, I could give a good answer to that question. It's um where i began was in kind of a recognition of uh forms of uh, advantages and forms of privilege that i have so I have, a, I have a steady job i don't have to worry about um you know where you know the where the money for the next month is coming from and um there's many there are other ways in which i've been lucky in terms of uh, you know living moving about in this world but I do have responsibilities that, that are sometimes quite intense. I I teach full time Mm -hmm. and I want to devote to my students, you know, and to my teaching, you know, certain energy because I think that, you know, I I tell myself that what I'm teaching um, and the students themselves deserve, deserve my time. I also, I'm also a parent of two, as I mentioned, two teenagers and, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm really, I feel very lucky and blessed to be a parent. And that also requires time, though. I mean, you know, to raise children is, is a form of work. And then at this point in my life, I, you know, it's not only children that I have, but also, you know, aging loved ones, mm-hmm. um, aging parents. Um, none of this is very special. I mean, this is, this is just another way of talking about life. And, and again, and there are many other things that I don't face that other people face on a daily, daily situation. But um, devoting time to your own practice, it, it's remains so crucially important to me. I, I don't think I can imagine living without this practice. I don't know what I would do. Mm. Uh, I don't know how I would how I would move in the world if I, if I didn't undertake this practice. It's, um, it's sometimes hard to find this, both the space and the psychological wherewithal to do it. And so my very practical answer is something like, um, I've heard this phrase: the, the clockwork muse, which is to make it not to rely on inspiration, but to every day, and for me, waking up before everyone else wakes up, the kids wake up, and hacking out some time in the early, early morning to to write. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember Austin Clark before he passed away. I asked him, you know, how do you keep doing it when there's so many things to tell you you can't do it because you don't think you're able to do it because, you know, you're sure that no one cares if you do it. And his point was you you have to keep doing it. It was one of the last things he told me was you have to believe that it's important. And um, so I guess I guess that's maybe what I'd, I'd tell you and I'd tell other people too. You have to be, believe that it's important because because uh, you're reading your work, uh, Kaysan, I think it is.
1: Thank you for that. That means the world to me. And thank you for your work. And it's been such a pleasure. And I'm also really excited to uh, send you a new draft sometime in the future. Look out uh, for it soon. Please,
0: yeah, please, please do. I, look, I really, really, really look forward to that. I I'm Anxiously, I, I really look forward to that. And um, yeah, and thank you. Writer to Writer is brought to you by Brick Podcast and Brick Magazine. Special thanks to the Toronto Arts Council for their support of this series. Subscribe to Brick Podcast through Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Brick Magazine on our website, brickmag.com, where you can also get a first look at our new winter 2022 issue featuring writing and interviews from Eleanor Wachtel, Kinesia Lubrin, and many more. Thanks for listening.